is knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This will serve as episode 326. Today, it's Jason and Crow. Uh, we're going to get back to doing more shows that are just the two of us um, in light of the recent Bamboo episode, which I thought would be a nice break from so much of what we, we covered. I got a lot of email. People are very invested in what's going on around the world, so we'll get right back to it. We'll hold up our end. Uh, we're going to cover the 60s, and we're going to get up to the early part of the 60s here. And there's method to the madness, as there was in the Bamboo episode. If you look at the undertone of why I covered Bamboo, it serves as immunity to your mind. Everything that's going on in this world is based on what people can be made to believe in. Mind precedes everything. As an example of this, have you all seen the story spinning around the internets where, wait for it, 21 giant statues are going to be around in different cities, and one city is pulled out of the crowd to be highlighted, Phoenix. Everyone knows what the Phoenix represents, right? something rising from the ashes. But the 21 is what we're contending with now in this blackjack year, which is not to say 21 is a bad number, but it is to say the way we are seeing it used is absolutely a blackjack idea, which is why we will shortly have Michael Hoffman on, uh, who began to recognize this all the way back in the late 80s. And when he comes with his sequel, The Twilight Language, he's not going to tell you how to remedy this. He's going to tell you what happened. Now, to this end, the things that we're going to cover here allow a mind to begin to understand simple, basic tenets. And once you grasp them and adopt them, if it's for you, you have decided that it matters and you adopt it, it's almost like a level of immunity for your mind. And to be fair, Jason and I just mentioned this before we turned on our mics. If you go to the history, you'll see that the 60s is what history will tell you is where we lost our innocence. Well, that's one way to say it. What actually happened is the world changed when operational. Then 20 years later in the 80, 80s, all the corporate chess pieces were moved into places, all the financial, just all that stuff was moved into position while the world had a party called the 80s. 20 years later, we did 2000. Everybody knows what happened there. There's the end game operational out front. Now, a lot of this stuff doesn't work as easily as everyone would have dreamed if simply the human mind questions what is real, what is not, what is acceptable, what is not. Now, if you've come to a point where you accept that history is a lie agreed upon, what we're about to show you is the out in the open, switching 180 degree turnaround from people have rights, people are happy, America is the greatest thing in the world to exactly the opposite. This is where the train flips on the track. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And good morning. All right. Uh, with no further ado, let's let's jump in here. We've got quite a bit to cover. And if I'm not mistaken, these notes are going to take us to what, 63, 64? This is going to take us up to the beginning of 1964 and the British invasion, which then leads to the beginning of the counterculture movement. All right. So in other words, if people are very interested in what we're about to lay down, there's a part two to the 60s where we will break it down verbatim. And um, I'll cut to the chase right now. If I'm going to put a stake in the ground and say, this is where everything changed, and that's kind of a generalization. There are decades and centuries running up to this where things were changing and plans are being made. But the moment it all recognizably changes, and it's one of these world events where every mind, with very few exceptions, are affected, 
That is going to be called 112263. Now, there's a special number for you. It's got the 11 idea, the 22 idea, the 911 idea, and the 33 idea all wrapped up in it. Um, and not only that, I was looking the other day. I hope I get this right. Uh, Saturn was in Capricorn. If people have been following the sky clock stuff, which Athen will be back shortly if you haven't. Anyhow, let's do this, Jason. Let's start off with describing what America was like in the 1950s. This was a decade that saw several post-World War II booms. It had the rise of the Cold War and the beginnings of the Civil Rights Movement. The United States was looked at as the world's strongest military power. Its economy was one of the booms, and because of this, there were multiple examples of this financial prosperity seen and experienced by the population. Many were buying new cars and beautiful homes in the suburbs. A multitude of other consumer goods were becoming available to increasing numbers of people than had ever been able to enjoy such things. Mainstream history mentions the civil rights movement and the almost cult-like crusade against communism that existed both at home and overseas, suggesting that there were underlying divisions in American society. That doesn't seem to be how it is looked upon by most people who experienced it, however. The 1950s are looked upon as the best of what America had been. And that's no understatement. I talked with my grandparents and my parents, the golden age of America in the view of people who lived it was the 1950s. Everything became uh, more modern, more American, more great. The interstate systems were being finished off. You know, that infrastructure that allows everything to move around this country, uh, that had all come to a thing. The greatest cars in the world, which is really one of the big change points. Everyone's got a car or two in the family, and they're not living in city centers. They can go out to the suburbs now because everyone's got a car and the freeway or the interstate systems are in. What the interstate systems do is allow trucking, and we get modern and bigger, but this is going to be very short-lived. And by the way, no one should be fooled. The the boom of the 50s is on the tail of World War II, and that should never be overlooked because, I mean, we're not going to have time in this episode to cover World War II, but it is what it is. There are several booms that historians discuss in regard to the 1950s. First was the booming economy. The second was the booming suburbs. And the third and most often mentioned today is what is commonly known as the baby boom. This last boom is said to have begun in 1946 when a record number of babies were born in the United States. The number is stated as 3.4 million. Afterward, 4 million babies are said to have been born each year during the 1950s. In all, by the time the baby boom is set to taper off in the year 1964, there were almost 77 million baby boomers. After World War II was over, it is noted that many Americans were eager to have children, and plenty of them, because there was confidence that the future held nothing but peace and prosperity, which was actually true in many ways. Between the years 1945 and 1960, the gross national product more than doubled, growing from $200 billion to more than $500 billion, which kicked off what is known as the golden age of American capitalism. A large amount of this increase came from government spending, which came in the form of things like the construction of interstate highways, new schools, the distribution of veterans' benefits, and a significant increase in military spending. 
the military spent large sums on things such as airplanes and blossoming technologies like computer systems. Later on in the decade would also see the full-scale leap into space technologies as well. All of this contributed to the decade's large economic growth. Rates of unemployment and inflation were low, and wages for many were high. Middle-class people had more money to spend than they ever had before. The variety and availability of consumer goods of all kinds expanded along with the booming economy, so many had more things to buy, and buy they did. All right, so this is a big deal and it matters. History is, in fact, a lie agreed upon. And when you get a critical eye and you look backwards, and it's not too tough because this just precedes my lifetime. In other words, I know people who lived through this, um, so I don't have to guess at what I'm told. I've had firsthand accounts, and I also understand how my family came to be up into the 60s. Now, the baby boomers, um, I'm born in 63, and often that date is tagged as the last year of the baby boomers. It, it varies a little bit, but the baby boomers as a whole, or the people that precede me by a number of years, this is going to be the most victimized generation in the modern era. These are going to be the people that are of age in the 60s, and the psychological operation begins to reform the entirety of what I'll just say is the human mind. Um, but to top it off, there were other things that went along with this. All those veterans, so many of them had their college paid for. Why was America great? Everyone had education. Everyone had jobs. Only the father needed to work. The mother could hold down the household and raise the family in a more traditional kind of mock leave it to beaver sense. Um, that's all about to change and it's going to change very quickly. But now let's think about another thing since we've mentioned vehicles and we've mentioned the retooling basically of America with interstate highways and the best cars the world had ever known, which by the way, to this day are still sought after. And by the way, those are all about to go away because gasoline is about to go away. But to get to the point, it was commonly stated well into the 60s and 70s that Detroit was the heartbeat and lifeblood of this country. What was good for Detroit was good for the country. It did not take long to completely reverse that narrative in the 80s, where all of a sudden, oh, Detroit can't possibly make vehicles like it ever did uh, because of globalization and other things that are made upwards. And look how quickly they dismantled basically what was prior to this called the heartbeat and lifeblood of America. They tore it down. And these, this is one strategic move after another. But we're about to focus in on those poor folks of the generation I am the tail end of. They are going to be drugged to nearly death. They're going to have their minds warped and everything that they ever learned they could count on, that's going to be pulled right out from under them, just like a rug, incrementally, piece by piece by piece. All of this positive momentum leads one to wonder what happened in the following decade of the 1960s that created the massive downward spiral that has taken us to the insane propaganda and surveillance state that we live in today. We will break down the decade of the 1960s year by year and demonstrate how the 1960s was a decade of total manipulation and deceit on numerous levels. And heartbreak and victimization and it'll go on and on and on. But once you recognize it for what it is, some level of immunity will come into your mind the next time the news wants to tell you a thing. At that point, 
you will be looking with a skeptical eye, or maybe you'll even have grown past that and said, I don't need to hear or see any of this nonsense anymore. Um, and by the way, this is the reason for things like the bamboo. If you want to find reality in this world, the only place I know where to go get it is nature. That's as close as we're coming to reality. In other words, all these histories and narratives and world emergencies and news and whatever the hell it might be come across the information systems. It's all Fugazi. It has no root in nature. It has no basis in anything but being man-made. And we'll be quite frank here. Um, it's about to tee up and everything is about to change up to the point where the sixties come in America won at just about everything. They came in as the hero on the white knight horse in world war II and saved the entire world from goose stepping from the Nazis and those damn Japanese who are now our best friends, by the way, as we get up to this point, um, they were going to, you know, come take over the world and ruin everything. Um, but that was what put the infrastructure in place. Those car companies, they were building bombers and tanks and Jeeps. So when that all ended, they went back to building cars, which ended up being the best in the world. Everyone had money. Everyone had wheels. Here comes the 1960s and the rug is going to literally be yanked. And if I had to boil it down to one overarching idea, it's about values. That is what is changed in that kind of cheesy 19. 50s idea that is encapsulated in things like leave it to beaver which is kind of a comedy of the values we actually had what's about to change is everything how men treat women how sex is dealt with how drugs are dealt with how violence is dealt with is all going to be wrapped up in this to begin to just decimate the values that were once within the family unit despite how ideal the 1950s seemed all was not wonderful for everyone in the United States. On February 1st, 1960, four black college students from North Carolina Agricultural and Technical College in Greensboro, North Carolina, stage a sit-in at a segregated lunch counter at a Woolworth department store, protesting their denial of service. This single action would be the first of a national campaign by approximately 70,000 students, both white and black, over the next eight months in sit-ins across the nation for civil rights. Six months after the initial event, the original four protesters would be served lunch at the same counter. President Dwight Eisenhower would also sign the Civil Rights Act of 1960 into law on May 6, 1960, an update to the 1957 law. Let's make a flat out blunt statement here. At this period of time, almost everyone that I've ever come in contact who lived it was proud to be an American above all other places. We were in fact a nation of laws and people trusted their government. Think about what I just said. You can't say that anymore, and it's been a long time since you could. But in this period of time, uh, it was these. This comes down to values, right? The American values would not have accepted crooked politicians or mistrust at the level we do now, because our values had not been yet skewed and ripped out from under us. I'll make a simple statement here: the race card has never known a time in this country where it didn't deliver the instability and infighting that it's intended to bring. In a nation of laws at this time, all that needed to be done was said, this is the way it is now and directed from the top down. It's no different than today. We keep hearing, oh, well, how come all these police are doing? Really? Really? So you can't be the head of government and say, 
on the air to every police chief in this country, you better get your shit in line and knock it off. You see how simple that is? Because when the rule gets broken after that's been laid down, people are removed. And as soon as people are removed, people learn how they better act. You see, the whole thing is a put up. It is, it's like abortion, religion, politics, the race card. These things have never failed to create the discontent and just discombobulation that's required for manipulation. 1960 seems to still be, for the most part, living off of the highs left over from the 1950s. In 1960, nearly half of America's population is under 18 years old. It is a young society and is considered the most affluent generation in U.S. history. It is also very doubtful that anyone even remotely had a clue as to the turmoil and chaos that was coming in just the next few years. While reading a good book may have been a common thing of past decades, television is rapidly taking its place, with color television coming out in the early 1960s and becoming adopted as the norm as the decade progressed. By the end of the 1960s, 95% of households will have at least one television set. And this is made fun of in that classic all-time pre-echoed 9-11, Back to the Future. Remember when Marty's sitting there and he mentions, oh, we've got two or three televisions and those people in the 50s can't possibly imagine that that's true. But this is where it sets in. In the same way it was known when radio came online that this was mass communicating. Another movie that makes fun of this is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? When the senator incumbent comes along and they ask him, aren't you going to press the flesh and meet the constituents? And he says, shut up, you idiot. We're mass communicating here. In other words, we're reaching a time when we're going to get to television and we're going to combine radio with moving pictures. And that one thing above all others is going to slowly deteriorate what it means to have family values, what the family unit looks like, all of it. Currently, uh, if you look at what television is bringing us, no one's even quite sure what genders make up a family anymore. As a matter of fact, we're sectioning off parts of our society that probably make up one or 2% and lifting it to 100% broadcast to everyone and asking, why don't we see more of this? Why aren't there more examples of this thing, which has such a low percentage in natural occurrence as to be absurd uh, to address it in this way? It can never be understated what TV is going to do. And by the way, I don't know if you remember, Jason, but one of the first dramas ever put out on TV, you and I covered it. Uh, the Queen something, I think, is the name of it. It's done from a Lord's Manor house. And what day is it aired? Yeah, you know it. September 11. There it is, man. Here it comes. Trains on the track. The advent of color television has a direct and immediate impact on drive-in movie theaters, which were extremely popular at the time. In 1962, there are approximately 6,000 drive-in theaters in the United States. One year later... That number is said to have been reduced to 3,550. Walk-in theaters also feel television's effect as more people choose to stay home and watch one of the three networks programming as they supposedly fight for ratings. The film industry is said to have peaked in 1964 when 502 films were released. Box office sales will continue to increase with ticket prices, the true 
cultural blockbuster films aren't until the next decade, but the selection of films is never again so varied. So let's just make a simple point here. Um, I was alive to see the end of the drive-in theater, and you know what it represented? It represented the family unit. The family would get in the station wagon. We'd go together to see a film. There'd be two cheesy cartoons like Chili Willy up front for the children. There was usually a playground up in front of the the theater where the, the outdoor screen was. Popcorn and the family unit would go to have a family night out. Um, this is what's going to begin to change. And by the way, the movie industry supposedly responds by saying, oh, this TV is going to kill us. So what we're going to have to do now is make these elaborate films that couldn't possibly, TV can't possibly rival them. I don't know how much accuracy there is to any of this, but what I do know is you will see films like Lawrence of Arabia or other just massive scope epic films that clearly TV couldn't come close to. Um, but it's a lot, it's saying a lot to make the claim and then back it with numbers that TV was such a big deal that it cut the movie attending in almost half. To set things up for one of the biggest events that would severely damage many people's points of view of the greatness of America, Democrat John F. Kennedy wins the U.S. presidential election after defeating Republican Richard Nixon. Kennedy was the youngest person to have been elected president at the age of 43, although Theodore Roosevelt was a year younger when he took office, although this was due to the assassination of President William McKinley. JFK was also the first Catholic president. Another first for the selection cycle was the use of televised debates. There were four in total, and this was a chance for more people than was ever before possible to not only hear but see their respective candidates duke it out. The first debate featured an hour-long discussion that primarily focused on domestic issues. It was moderated by Howard K. Smith of CBS, with questions posed by a panel of journalists and took place on September 26th, 1960, in Chicago. In America's second city, these things matter, but let's get down to brass tacks here. Prior to the first television debate by presidential candidates, the idea was is that your ideas or your so-called policies were the thing that were getting scrutinized. This is where it all changed. You can go on YouTube right now and look up the debates between JFK and Nixon. It's almost as if they set it up perfectly for the handsome young guy that they want next against the older, not so handsome Nixon. And what's going to happen is the people are going to begin to be swayed by who's handsome and who do I like best. And the ideas are slowly going to start creeping away from this point forward. I think, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm remembering back, that it even comes down to Nixon never had a chance. Did you see all the sweat on his lip? What the hell does sweat on a lip have to do with who should be supposedly, and I do say supposedly, running a country or not? The main thing here is, once again, TV is going to change every damn thing there is about this country. A huge issue debated between the candidates throughout the televised events was the threat of nuclear war. There are indications because of new inventions that 10, 15, or 20 nations will have a nuclear capacity, including Red China, by the end of the presidential office in 1964. This is extremely serious. 
I think the fate not only of our own civilization, but I think the fate of world and the future of the human race is involved in preventing a nuclear war. JFK during the third Nixon-Kennedy debate. All right. You've just been told one of the key pieces you will ever need to consider, and I hope you consider these points carefully. Everything just told to you proves that everyone who was involved in it was busy skewing your minds, our minds, our parents' minds, warping them. And maybe I should have added earlier with the race card and everything else, the nuke card, because that one always pays dividends too. And it's all nonsense and it's all provable nonsense. You can go back to the episodes we've done on nukes, which demonstrate, but think of the wording. If nothing else in this bullet point, was it China? No, it wasn't China. It was red China. What were the Russians? They were always reds, right? You're being mentally branded. You're being turned into Pavlov's dogs because these other programming things that happened earlier that you were completely unaware of had turned you into a dog. So when they rang the bell, you would salivate because at this point, everyone trusted the government. Everyone was proud to be an American. They had no reason to consider the level of deceit, which had already been established decades before. They just weren't aware of it. We had just won a supposed world war in America. The Superman had swept in with his magical cape and saved the entire world from hell on earth, which is what it was billed as. But think about who we're talking about here. Red China. You're being branded. Your mind is being warped. And by the way, Red China is going to be followed by the Red Russians. Um, You want to know the power of frequency, color, and branding? Well, start thinking about what we just laid down here, because there it is on the world stage. And it works, by the way. Continuing on with this idea, the next quote is from the State of the Union Address, January 30th, 1961. The deadly arms race and the huge resources it absorbs have too long overshadowed all else we must do. We must prevent the arms race from spreading to new nations, to new nuclear powers, and to the reaches of outer space. President Kennedy would go on to advise all prudent families to have a bomb shelter because of the many wars going on during that time were putting people's lives in danger. Well, our favorite sci-fi has told us all we need to know here, right? Fear is the mind killer. I actually know of neighbors that had bomb shelters within my lifetime based on this freaking nonsense. And the man who stood up and said, you need bomb shelters, do we need to identify who he is? Do we? If nukes exist, that's one thing. But if they don't, what does it tell you absolutely about what we're talking about here? But this fear idea, it's gone on, I don't know, my entire lifetime. It's gone from nukes, and then it went to the Cold War to the Russians. By the way, Vietnam was in there. Then the terrorists came. Then there were terrorist attacks. Then when that didn't work anymore, there was gun violence three times a day in every city in this country. The fear that they publish and propagate is literally the mind killer. That's why it's being done. And so you could go at this and ask simply, well, whatever came of it? If you go back and look, Your entire portions of people's lives were wasted based on a thing that never materialized into anything. And by the way, JFK is going to be at the center of this because they're going to convince the world that they go to the brink of nuclear war before he has his stage in Dealey Plaza on Dallas. And it is a stage. Report to the American people on the Berlin crisis, July 25th, 1961. 
In the thermonuclear age, any misjudgment on either side about the intentions of the other could rain more devastation in several hours than has been wrought in all the wars of humanity. Yep. The most powerful man in the world or the actor that claims that position has a magical red button and he can end the creator's creation at will. Does that seem like a reasonable thing? Is that, is that possible? No, it's, it's actually not possible. And if it was possible, then this creation wouldn't represent much or the idea of a creator above it. If you logically work all this out, but look back to World War II, look back to World War I. Look to the Vietnam War. Look to all these things and what is the common denominator? Men and women are violent. We can't get along. If we're not on top, we're going to get killed or cannibalized or forced to goose step. It is the constant reprogramming of the human mind that people are bad. People are violent. Someone in this world wants to kill you. Now logically break it down. Is that true? Or is it more true that the vast majority of lives you will ever bump into in your life are raising children and what they want more than anything is a better life for their children than they had? Sorry, I'm kind of losing my voice here, Jason. In 1960, five oil-producing nations allied to regulate the supply and price of oil. These countries realized they had a resource of worldwide importance. If they competed with each other, the price of oil could drop too much. They would run out of the supposedly finite commodity sooner than they would if oil prices were higher. To this end, they created the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, commonly known as OPEC. OPEC held its first meeting on September 10th through the 14th, 1960, in Baghdad, Iraq. The five founding members were Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. OPEC registered with the United Nations on November 6th, 1962. There's something that's never going to quit giving, but this bullet point, um, people who are my age realize how much control this exerted over the world. If you simply lived through the 70s, twice in the 70s, there came times when you couldn't get gas when you wanted it. But it really resonates with where we are now because I have friends that live in Detroit and tech jobs, and they're telling me right now that you probably can't find a new car for the year 2022 because supposedly there's a chip shortage. What's actually going on behind the scenes is there's this fast-tracking push to get everyone off oil, along with the rest of the resets or the redos or the 180s this world's about to take. uh, We are not long, if I had to venture an educated guess, from having gasoline burning cars. It's all going to go the way of the Tesla. And there's the game that's been played there, putting that on the stage to so much acclaim and uh, even showing up in our movies, right? Marvel, the top franchise, had Tesla, what's his name, Elon in there. The point I'm making is even these things that were monopolizing the concerns and the abilities of living people back in the day is still resonating. The same idea is still giving dividends. And if what we're hearing now is true, we're not long, maybe five years from the majority of gas burning engines magically going away. And what you're going to be told is the world's going to catch on fire because of global warming. So we got to do this. Chip shortages in automobiles, a problem that would never be an issue in the 1950s or 1960s. Hmm. Seems to be a (laughs) modern problem, eh? Well, I think it has something to do with red China, Jason. (laughs) Oh, those reds, those dirty reds. 
<laughs> you know, it's funny. Even when I say the word, I always in my mind, this is how Pavloved out I am. I'm the damn dog over here salivating, ringing my own bell. Every time I say red China or the communist reds, I always get an image of my mind of the hammer and sickle on the red flag. Talk about effective branding. That's programming. Yeah, it's a very particular red, by the way. Like a crimson red. Yeah, you know, the one that kind of grabs you by the throat and says, hey, pay attention. <laughs> 1960 sees the early rumblings of the coming Vietnam conflict. Not a war, mind you, because the last war, as we've said so many times, official war was World War II. This occurred with the Viet Cong emerging from the communist factions of North Vietnam. South Vietnam was more aligned with Western values, and the country would become a proxy war between the Soviet Union and China and the United States. Meanwhile, I think if I'm getting this right, that it's the 70s where Nixon goes into China for the first time and it's a big damn deal. And guess what? He brings Coca-Cola with him. Um, just follow, follow what happens and then try to assign reality to it. And if you do that one thing, none of this will work. But there's some interesting things about Vietnam. And by the way, uh, war is never what you've been told it is. But I have an uncle no longer with us who was actually wounded on one of those river boats. I know firsthand. I've seen the images of his platoon. I know where he was shot because I saw the scar. So whenever you put people together in any kind of a war situation with guns, bad things are going to happen. But the interesting thing about this is the draft. And what I've never been able to come to terms with was the draft implemented as a control mechanism, or did they know that it would get out of hand and, and it would become contention where all those young people said, screw this, this is your war, we're having no part of it. I suspect it got out of hand, and I suspect that the drugs were part of the solution, um, but I can't tell you for sure. But I can tell you one thing, certainly, war will pay dividends like no other thing in this world that brings fear to the mind. You know, there's one thing about the whole Vietnam thing that I never quite understood. Did they need to draft that many people because the actual U.S. military numbers really weren't that high that they needed to do this? If I had to venture a guess, Jason, and this is an educated guess, but I have not delved deeply per se into this exact idea, but I've always marveled at it. I think the draft was a control mechanism because they knew the baby boomers had had so many kids. I suspect that they didn't expect the backlash, but the British invasion, the drugs and everything made short order of that. And by the way, think about where the drugs were coming from. We've covered this before. That LSD was made in the very university that grandma and grandpa and mom and dad were paying for their child to go get an education. So you can see right where the source of these things are coming. Um, and it becomes big news, the sit-ins, the protests. But think about this. How many times have we covered, what is it, Penn State University? You know, the song Tin Soldiers and Nixon's Coming is about that fake stage shooting. And how many times have I pointed out? Let's see if I can remember. That's in Ohio, by the way. Yeah. Chrissy Hind of the Pretenders is there. All of Devo is there. Joe Walsh is there. You see where I'm going here? So you can draw the lines that the fake, fake, fakety fake was there, but I can't be 100% sure whether it was overreach that got out of hand or whether they were just waiting for the, the backlash the whole time. Hard to know, but does it matter? Because we know what the result was. Well, what I was thinking was perhaps they didn't want to deplete the more highly trained army soldiers, and they just wanted to throw all these young kids at it that they were unfortunately less concerned about. 
Well, first of all, there were a lot of people back in those days who were dodging draft legally because their parents were rich. That was a known common practice. It was the old born with a silver spoon idea. Secondarily, I would point out war was never declared. This is the Vietnam conflict. Tertiarily, I would point out that Jim Morrison's father and admiral did the false flag event, which kicked it all off. So I think we have the evidence to say all the world's a stage here, Jason. I really do. In January of 1961, JFK takes the office of the president. He would inherit the space race, the Cold War, building tensions in Vietnam, and a host of other situations that would play out throughout the decade. Here is the mind killer, but there's also another thing coming heavily into rotation as JFK takes office, and that is human perception. It's not enough that we've killed the minds with fear. They can't reason anymore. They're going to shortly give up every value they ever had. And things that they would have found so unacceptable are going to become commonplace in everyday living. What else goes on is now, guess what? We're getting up into the space age. So now all of you folks out there living your lives need to imagine what we're going to tell you you need to imagine. And JFK is the guy who does the punt kicks it off. And he's also the guy who plays the stage with more fear on his way out the door as the fake moon landing comes to be. And NASA was founded in 1958. And the buildup to the social engineering of space and space travel and all that really started getting kicked off in the late 50s and would absolutely continue throughout the 1960s to the point that people were totally behind everything NASA was doing. And it was all part of the rah, rah, rah against the Russians to beat those dirty reds. How could you ever say anything else? I mean, look at America. Look at the best cars, these nice houses, this high standard of living. Science is the be all and end all. Look all it's done for us. We just came through the golden age on the back of science and innovation um, and commerce and all these things. So, yeah, it works. But at the end of the day, it's all a lie and it's all warping of perception. So fear to kill the mind's ability to reason and get the mind to accept things which were unacceptable a short time ago. And secondarily, false perceptions like telling a child that Santa Claus is real. No different. March 1st, 1961. President John F. Kennedy issues Executive Order Number 10924, which established the Peace Corps as a new agency within the Department of State. The same day, he sent a message to Congress asking for permanent funding for the agency, which would send trained American men and women to foreign nations to assist in development efforts. The Peace Corps captured the imagination of the U.S. public, and during the week after its creation, Thousands of letters poured into Washington from young Americans hoping to volunteer. There it is, man. The tentacles go out to cover the world. And who are the tentacles? The unsuspecting, honest, living men and women who want to make a difference. Nonetheless, the infrastructure will be built around them and it will go out almost everywhere. And by the way, um, think about it. What was the big symbol for the 60s, uh, the counterculture, peace? Well, this is the Peace Corps. Follow it. Know that words have meanings. Draw the lines, and you'll see the Fugazi nature of what we've accepted as the real world. Now, when I got to that point where I found that note, I had completely forgotten about the Peace Corps. I don't hear anything mentioned of it anymore or anybody caring about it anymore. I certainly don't really remember anyone talking about it when I was young. What experiences have you had since you're the 10 years before me 
I'm assuming it was still a thing in the 70s, right? Yeah, well, way past the 70s. In the 90s, people that are, I don't know, 11, 12 years younger than me uh, had friends that were in the Peace Corps still going along in the 90s. And by the way, the Peace Corps did a lot of things you could tout as beneficial. But nonetheless, um, it's tentacles going out, infrastructure being built, political ideas and rules and laws and activities all being established everywhere. In other words, it's a little bit like saying, right now we have a world of villages. How can we begin to make it so-called global? Well, this is one of the things that does that, isn't it? Um, And it's never easy to cut and dry. If you can show where the Peace Corps saved people from being flooded to death or restored a forest, I think you can agree those are positive things. You see, that's the conundrum of where we exist. Cracking of the DNA code. In the early 1960s, Marshall Nirenberg and National Institutes of Health colleagues were studying how DNA directs protein synthesis and the role of RNA in these processes. Their 1961 experiment using a synthetic messenger RNA or mRNA, sound familiar? mRNA strand that contained only uracils, U, yielded a protein that contained only phenylalanines. Identifying UUU, three uracil bases in a row, as the RNA code for phenylalanine was their first breakthrough. Within a few years, Nirenberg's team had cracked the 60 mRNA codons for all 20 amino acids. In 1968, Nirenberg shared the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his contributions to breaking the genetic code and understanding protein synthesis. Well, I guess I'll just add that if someone won the Nobel, I know what I'm looking at. I am not interested. I've got better things to do in life. Anyone who gives a damn, go look up who started the Nobel Peace Prize and what they were involved in, um, blowing things up, basically. But I always have so much skepticism that I never really dig in because I'm not interested in nonsense. But what I can tell you is if we look at the world as a whole, a big part of the fear is convincing minds that science has so much more power than it does. Nuke's a good example. Landing on the moon's a good example. There are lots of good examples where people have been absolutely convinced that these magical men in lab coats have power beyond imagination. And yet for those who have woken up from the dream, from the spell, uh, it's all a put up. What they're good at is stagecraft. And stagecraft is a hell of a long way for doing a thing in real life. And the reason I bring this up is because I suspect a lot of the DNA RNA idea is that, but nonetheless, you know damn well, whatever it is they're coming to, well, look where we live in 2020. How much information that has to do with this do you suppose was just put to bad use, I would ask. This is another one of those points that made me think, if they announced this, and people, of course, were reading newspapers and watching the news quite religiously at the time, What would this have done to the societal mind? Did it impact in a way that, oh, we can manipulate the very creation of humanity now? There it is, Jason. Perfect. Spot on. Well, I would estimate that what happened was the mind was convinced that a a human man or a woman is just so many building blocks that someone can come edit or, you know, do whatever they want with. It's not this special creation, this godly thing. Uh, where living men and women once were. And not only that, with the highest power there is to have, as far as I know in any creation, it's called the ability to create a life. And that's what a man and a woman has. Now, 
scrutinize what you're being shown here. And what is it? Is there anything spiritual or special about being a living man or a woman? No, it's the exact opposite. And you're made up of these little building blocks and we're hacking them at will. So I'm with you all day long. It's just a shuffling of perception to get you further down the road from the values that once did make this place great. And you know what else really started taking a nosedive in the 1960s? Religion and the belief in God of some sort. Yeah. The thing about the 60s that I recall is the baby boomers that are 20, you know, some years older than I am, uh, they went through the counterculture movement. And what happened was a lot of other religions got mixed in, but in a psychedelic way. So like the Tibetan Book of the Dead became popular because we like to get high and read these trippy things. Um, but why did the Beatles need a guru from India, a fake guru from India? Well, this is the idea. It's the subversion of true spirituality. Now, had these people been free of that programming, maybe some would have been Protestant or Catholic or whatever the spiritual tradition in their area is, and some small portion of them would have excelled and actually done spiritual work. What actually happened was the fake the drug-induced became popular, and I think that did have an effect on what was once called church in this country. And the whole drug thing that's going to be coming in the next few years, it's not to say that people weren't doing drugs, but the 1950s, that was the beatnik thing. Smoking pot, drinking too much coffee, reading poetry in coffee shops, things like that. That spilled over and then became way more of a norm as the music thing that we're going to get to blossomed and exploded onto all of society, really. Well, it was not a thing that went on in public. And while it might have been known about, it was unacceptable in any mainstream setting. You're not going to go to work and make this normalized or, you know, coffee conversation. It was like back then, think of somebody back then having a tattoo. I, I lived, uh, I'm old enough to remember a time when if you had a tattoo and you couldn't cover it, you're going to have a hell of a time getting a job. And the idea behind this seems a little extreme to us now because we've been so normalized. But the point was, is there is a respect level uh, afforded to every portion of the so-called so societal interactions of us all. And it's easy for us to think that's a, like a Nazi-ish idea. But the truth is, is men and women were still acting with respect towards each other up to a point. If a, if a woman stood up, everyone at the table did. If you met a woman, you took off your damn hat. If a woman was coming, you opened her door. Now, you can make fun of this all you want, but there is an underlying level of respect here that is going to be absolutely decimated. And as I look back on it, I realize how special losing that was because just that one thing, how the genders in interact became much lower and more base. And look where we are now, where it's porn on demand, where there's there, there's no level of respect at any level for the most part. It's very unusual to see. Now, it's interesting you brought up the tattoo thing. I would think in years gone by, tattoos were pretty much a thing of mm, the military, predominantly the Navy, or bikers and things like that. The normalization for that whole thing, piercings as well as tattoos, that started in the 90s. And I remember watching it happen. Sure, some people got tattoos in the 80s, but it was not anywhere near to the point that by like 93-ish, it started exploding to the point that I remember looking around at Denny's one night 
and just thinking about how much things had changed just since I'd gotten out of high school in 1991. The 80s thing was wiped out of existence in the whole 90s, whatever you want to call it. Everything just looked and felt different. Well, a couple things going on there that I could state. First of all, the people that came out of the war eras that had like Navy anchors on their arm, that tattooed was not viewed in the same way as other types of tattoo up to a point. But what you're talking about is what I equate with body modification, the normalization of body modification prior to the big everybody's tattooed thing in the 90s. There was this thing where people would put plugs in their ear. It was called tribal. It was called all these things. And they really stood out in a crowd, but it was a known subculture called body modification. But if you break that down, um, let's ask a simple question. When you're 16, do you suppose you're going to value the same music or art that you'll value when you are 80? Well, now let's ask the question, question about body art. When you're 16 or younger and you get, you modify your body in some way, will you appreciate the day you get that art at the same level when you're older? Probably not. So what's actually going on is the idea to modify your spiritually granted shell called the body. Even that is, is changing the perception of what's acceptable, what a human being is, a level of respect, I would say. And I got to be careful when I talk about this. And by the way, I've got a tattoo, so I don't want to get a bunch of nasty grams. And to be completely honest, I wish I never would have got it because the day I got it, it was way cooler to me than where I am now. What I see it now is a silly thing that I did when I was young and I didn't know any better. And I know everyone doesn't feel that way and it, it doesn't matter. People get to choose. You do what you're going to do. But when it mainstreams in the way we saw it in the 90s, you see all media showing if you're going to be an icon or cool or in a band, you got to have sleeves, right? You got to have endless tattoos. And that's how the idea is normalized. And anything that gets normalized is by intention. Well, the reason I brought it up is just to relate it back to exactly what we're talking about here. And this will probably be the last thing we can say for hour one. The groundwork for a lot of the things that came in the 80s and especially the 90s were laid out in the 60s because the people in the 90s, they were the children of the people in the 60s. Very, very different, a lot of them, from the very straight-laced and some might say even square and uptight kind of individuals of the 1950s. Very different, and once that's gone, that's gone. They were a dying breed once the 60s counterculture hit and became the norm in 1960s society. Well, fame that matters changes lock, stock, and barrel in the 60s. If you go back to the Hollywood era where there were famous people, they were just out of, out of reach. They were richer than you. They were probably better looking than you. Uh, they were admired more than you ever could be. It was this unattainable admiration idea to fame. In the 60s, that all changes. Now there's this other long-haired guy. Um, and look, he's showing me it's cool to do acid. And he's showing me it's cool to grow your hair or whatever the fad may be. But the idea of fame changes wholesale. And by the way, when we get up into the internet age, it really happens again. Think of the idea of the selfie. I can tell you firsthand, if people went around in the 60s and 70s taking pictures of themselves, they'd have been laughed out of existence as being vain, kind of you know, low-minded vanity it would have been viewed. But it's always changed. And what drives it? Culture drives it. And what drives culture? Well, media and fame. That's pretty much what drives it. All right. Well, that's bringing us to the end of hour one. And we're only in 1961 so far. And man, I'll tell you, 61 
is going to see the beginning of a whole lot of the fear mongering and all that kind of societal shakeup stuff starting big time. They're going to start shaking the tree branches to scare the crap out of all the poor little Americans. Go buy your bomb shelters, all that kind of nonsense. That starts in 61. Yeah, it does. And the, even in film and cinema, there's this like gritty. The one I want to always remember is like the French Connection. This kind of brutal, gritty film is going to slowly start to creep in. But to underscore the point you just made, there's um, the China Syndrome. That's much later in the 70s, I think. But go look at that and I'll tell you exactly what it was done with it. The movie China Syndrome was released. It was made famous. It was in news everywhere. And then you know what happened right after Three Mile Island, which is talking about the very same thing. So what we're going to talk about in the 60s is just a similar example of how the media precedes what comes. Anyhow, I wanted everyone to know I was cutting some branches this morning and I went through a big old cloud of pollen, which killed my voice. I drank some tea. Hopefully it'll be better for hour two. All right, there it is. I'm going to get a drink of water. Uh, that's hour one of 326. And uh, I hope you'll join us all at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com for the full two hours. And I would like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.